Last month on Communion Sunday, we looked together at the significance and the vital importance of Scripture for the believer, of continually opening God's Word and being fed from it day after day. And I shared with you six helpful guidelines for reading the Bible from the life and ministry of the great Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I mean, ultimately from Scripture, but I robbed him of an awful lot of good stuff. And then I told you that this month on Communion Sunday, I would do the same thing for prayer, that I would bring you six helpful guidelines for a life of prayer and a life of prayerful meditation. And I am going to do that today again with a healthy dose of Spurgeon, which is fitting. Because one of the most common excuses I hear for not praying, and if I'm honest, one of my own most frequent self-justifications for not praying as much as I ought to is that we're so busy. Right? I want to pray, but I'm busy. I want to read the Bible, but I'm busy. This is for us the most low-hanging fruit. It's so convenient. I want to come to church, but we're oh so busy. I'd like to exercise, but I'm just so darn busy. Pull that low-hanging fruit is what got us in trouble to begin with, and I want to urge you not to do that. Because you may be busy, I may be busy, but none of us are as busy as Charles Spurgeon was, who pastored what we would today call a mega church, who wrote many, many books, edited a magazine, The Sword and the Trowel, oversaw dozens of ministries, including an orphanage that was connected to the Metropolitan Tabernacle, his church, answered upwards of 500 letters per week, and was still a faithful husband and father to his children. I've read a number of articles trying to reverse engineer and kind of suss out this secret to his freakish productivity, and all of them have, by my estimation, failed to do that. If we could figure it out, we'd all be doing it. But what they have in common is that they all recognize the priority that Spurgeon gave to prayer. And I don't just mean it was a priority for him. Like if you asked him, he'd say, yeah, it's a priority. I think if you ask any Christian, is prayer a priority for you, they'd have to say, sure, yeah, just not quite what it should be, but it's a priority. No, I mean that he actually gave it the priority, meaning the first place in his life. He gave it the first place in every day. Last time when we were looking at how to read the Bible, I read to you a Spurgeon quote suggesting that private morning devotions should be completed before meeting any other human being. That going out into your day without having first spent time in the Word and prayer was just like going out into your day without first getting dressed because you were completely unprepared to do that. And again, he was talking about both reading the Scriptures and prayer saying, quote, It is a good rule never to look into the face of man in the morning till you have looked into the face of God, and equally a good rule always to have business with heaven before you have any business with earth. Martin Luther, 350 years earlier, had more or less the same philosophy when he said, I am now so busy that if I did not spend the first three hours of each day in prayer, I could not get through the day. You hear that? Not I'm so busy, but I still make time for prayer even though it's hard. No, I'm so busy that if I didn't give priority for prayer in the morning, I'd be sunk. And we sing songs and talk in, in these terms. We talk about having a devotional time, or some people say a quiet time with God uh, in the morning and again uh, at the end of the day. And that is good. 
It's good to go to the garden. It's good to have our sweet hour of prayer. And yet Spurgeon also wrote these words, and I think there's great wisdom in them. He said, It is good and well to have your times of prayer. It is good to set apart seasons for special supplication. We have no doubt of that. But we must never allow this to engender the superstition that there's a certain holy hour for prayer in the morning, especially acceptable hour for prayer in the evening and a sacred time for prayer at certain seasons of the year. Don't, don't get that superstition that there's this hour of prayer in the morning and one in the evening. This from a guy who wrote a devotional that I still use to this day called Morning and Evening, which predictably is set up like March 7, morning, devotional. March 7, evening, devotional. Yes, set apart times for dedicated prayer, but don't think of all the other hours of the day as somehow off time or your secular time or somehow qualitatively different from the time you spend with God. Just like Lent is a wonderful season to focus on following Jesus more closely, but we don't say, all right, then the rest of the year, feel free, feel comfortable to just lag behind and, and walk astray. But all that said, as with Bible reading, most Christians do want to pray, want to pray more, want to pray more faithfully, more biblically, more effectively. The struggle is rather knowing how we ought to pray and maybe getting ourselves to do what we want to do. Paul had something to say about that. What I want to do, I don't do. And then the stuff I don't want to do, that I do. Well, I have for you six more guidelines, six more wonderful tips that I have found to be very helpful to me in my prayer life. You have an insert once again with lines, and if you are the lucky one who has the one that starts with the number seven instead of with the number one, why, you can turn that in at the Easter breakfast for an extra cup of coffee. There's no way that half of them actually start with seven instead of with one. You are special if you haven't. Let's begin with number one, and I have to actually backtrack a little bit here, because even though I think most of us want to pray, maybe what we really want is to want to want to pray, right? Maybe what we really want is to feel the compulsion to do the thing we know we ought to do. We want to, but we don't feel like it. This reminds me an awful lot of uh, Aaron and I when it comes to certain movies. She'll say, do you want to see this movie? And I'll say, oh, absolutely. Sometimes we'll even buy the DVD or something, and we'll have it. And, and uh, Yeah, I definitely want to see that. It looks great. But then anytime she says, you want to watch this one tonight? I go, eh, let's watch something that's funny or more exciting. I want to see that, just not in the moment. Maybe I more want to want to see it. I want to do it, but, but off in the future sometime. This is a fairly common situation, I think, for believers. I, I want to pray. Yes, I, I'm pro-praying, but in the moment I'm too tired or I'm stressed. I'm feeling bitter, angry, hopeless, and that's no way to enter into prayer. Or you feel far from God, and you don't know if you can draw near at this time. And maybe you're even in the back of your mind kind of doubting whether prayer even matters. This is the most important time for prayer. When you are angry, stressed, depressed, feeling far from God. Before his most famous prayer, the high priestly prayer of John 17, Jesus said to his disciples, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. And then immediately said, you guys stay here and pray. I'm going over there to pray. He knew that where he needed to be was turning to his father in prayer. To not pray because you don't feel like it or you don't feel up to it is like not taking medicine because you're too sick, right? 
Or, or maybe a better analogy, a few people here recently have gotten new knees, new joints. It's amazing, continually amazing to me that we can do this. But uh, I've noticed, I've been to that orthopedic hospital a lot over the last 15 years when people get new joints. And I've noticed more and more that it's earlier and earlier after the surgery that people are actually out there using it. In fact, I think that Larry and Sean both were up the same day walking on these things. Brand new knee, they're walking on it. And at, at first they're like, wow, yeah, I'm, I'm really going. I think the same thing was true of, of Christy with her new, new hip. You know, I'm, I'm walking around and it feels great. And then the pain block slowly wears off and it hurts, but you have to keep on doing it, keep on walking on it. And they tell you, you have to do this or this is not going to be any benefit to you. Up walking on the thing every day. The temptation I hear is to say, I will walk on it after it heals. I'll walk on it once it feels good to walk on it. When in reality, you have to walk on it until walking on it feels natural again. And the same thing is true of prayer. And so, number one, when you don't feel like praying, pray for help. Pray for help in feeling like praying. Pray for the desire to pray. Pray for the sense of closeness and intimacy. Pray that the enemy's attempts to drive the tip of a wedge between you and your creator would be thwarted. Because once that point is in there and it gets pushed down further, the wedge will then make more space between you and your creator. As the Prince of Preachers reminds us, it is good to strike when the iron is hot, but some make cold iron hot by striking. That's brilliant. I'd never heard that before this past week. You know, you, you, you hit iron with iron and friction creates heat. You can jumpstart the heat and then once it's hot, keep on striking. Often in the scriptures, this takes the form of pleading with God to hear us. You don't feel like praying, so you say, God, please hear me. And in the back of my mind, I think, isn't that sort of like saying to God, hey, the problem's not me, it's you. I need you to be a better listener. And I mean, I can almost even see that, and yet that doesn't stop David throughout the Psalms from doing just this. In situations where he is at the end of himself, he is stressed, he is scared, he is angry. I could read you uh, 10 minutes of these things, but I'll just read you a couple. Psalm 39, hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. Or Psalm 143, O Lord, give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness. The temptation is to hold off on prayer until you can really do it well. You can really do it justice. But that is nonsense. Do not feel guilty asking God to hear your prayers or asking him to give you a desire to pray, a confidence to pray, a hunger for prayer. This doesn't show a lack of faith, but the presence of faithfulness that you still want to follow him even when it isn't the most natural thing in the flesh. When the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak, we ask God to make the flesh willing as well. And God answers such prayers. Just look at Lamentations 3. The prophet Jeremiah writes, I was lost. I called on your name. O Lord, from the depths of the pit I cried. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. So he said to God, do not close your ear to my cry for help. And God answered that prayer, coming near to him and comforting him. And there are times when maybe you think, yeah, that sounds great, but I'm so frazzled, I don't even, 
I don't even think I could put words to my thoughts, let alone my prayers. I don't even know what to say. Pray anyway. An inward groaning of the heart is a good prayer when directed to God. God can hear our hearts. He speaks heart. And even better, the Spirit indwelling you translates those prayers for us to God in a way that is beyond us. Like we read that promise in Romans 8, 26 and 27. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to say, as we, uh, what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I've shared with you over the past uh, dozen years or so that I've struggled with insomnia off and on. It's not as bad as it, as it used to be, but whenever I talk about it or post about it or whine about it, someone always says, hey, great opportunity for reading the scripture and prayer, right? You're awake anyway. May as well redeem the time like we saw in Ephesians just this a couple weeks ago. Yeah, redeem the time. Get up, read the Bible. And, and here's the thing. In theory, that sounds great, but when people say that, it's like, oh, you've never been there, have you? You're, to quote a guy, when you have insomnia, you're never really awake and you're never really asleep, right? You're, you're always kind of at the edge. And, and I, I had a, such bad insomnia late last year that I literally went three days sleeping maybe an hour and a half each night. And on the fourth day, I said, I am so exhausted, I can't pray. And then I found I could pray. I just couldn't pray with words. I couldn't put thoughts together. And that's okay. Or as Spurgeon put it, when we cannot pray as we would, it is good to pray as we can. And if you find it hard to pray because in the midst of all this, your mind is, is just boiling over with thoughts and, and distractions are everywhere, remove as many of the distractions as you can. Turn off your phone. Unplug from everything. Withdraw to a quiet place of seclusion if possible. And if there are still distractions coming up from within in your mind, Force them into a single file line and pray through them. Give them each to God, one at a time, casting your cares on him as we are commanded to. When you feel like praying, pray. But when you don't feel like praying, that is often when you need to pray the most. That's the first and by far longest of the six. Number two, perhaps you want to pray. You want to pour out your heart to God, but you just you don't know where to start. What, what, what do I, how do I get going on this? Yes, there's the groaning of our hearts and the groaning of the Spirit on our behalf, but the example that the Lord Jesus gives us in Scripture with His prayers is certainly not to limit our prayer vocabulary to just groaning, right? That, that is not what we see in the Scriptures. The Scriptures are full of actual prayers made up of actual words. And thankfully, in giving us these examples of prayer, God has given us a great tool for prayer as well. So number two, when you don't know what to say, turn to God's word. Job, for example, was more afflicted than any of us has ever been. And in the midst of his suffering and his frustration, he said to God, call and I will answer or let me speak and you reply to me. That's 1322. Usually the way we speak of prayer is I prayed, God answered. I tell you about this answered prayer. I, I say to God, this is what I need, and then God answers. Lamentations 3 was a perfect example. You came near when I called on you, and you said, do not fear. But there's no reason we can't look to him to speak first. 
when we don't have the words. And then we can answer. Because prayer is a conversation. Open God's word, read what he has to say to you, and respond. Call and I will answer. Lord, let your word begin this holy conversation for me. Now, for Job, when he said these words, it was a desperate plea. Just somehow, I'll go first, you go first. I just want to hear something from you, God. We, on the other hand, have God's word already in hand and can access it anytime we like. And there's great precedent for this, by the way, for God speaking first. Not just Job, but Abraham, Moses, Samuel, Gideon, Elijah, Peter, Mary Magdalene at the empty tomb. Woman, why are you crying? She was in no position to be like, oh, there's a guy I might talk to. Is that Jesus? No, she couldn't even recognize God in the moment. He spoke with her. She spoke back. Before you know it, they're in a conversation, and he is comforting her, and her brokenness and sorrow is turned to Joy, overwhelming joy. In fact, most of Jesus' calling of his disciples works this way. He goes up and talks to them, and then they answer. I think with the exception of Andrew and John there at the beginning, where they're like stalking him, and they're like, what room are you staying in? But other than that, this is what Jesus does. He comes to us. That's what the incarnation's all about. We couldn't go to him, so he came to us. You don't know what to say. You don't know how to start. Open God's word and say, why don't you start? You talk first, God. Throughout the scriptures, we frequently find God speaking first and frail humans answering him. In Isaiah 55, 3, God says, Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. The quickest route to life for your weary soul is to listen to God and to respond. We mentioned last time as we looked at how to read the Bible that one of the best ways to enter into this sort of conversation with God is to pray the promises from God's word back to him. That applies here as well. The best possible foundation for our prayers is a promise that God has already made. And of course, when you do that, you know that you are praying for something that is the will of God. You don't have to wonder. And of course, the more you know of God's word, the more God's word dwells in you, the more you've read it and hidden it in your heart, the more easily you're able to do this. But in a pinch, I have found again and again that wherever I happen to be in my Bible reading, there will be something that comes up and I say, wow, now that is a, a promise of God to hold on to in this moment, to bring to him. Cindy Douglas just recently told me that she has actually been doing, and I don't know if she's the only one, she's been doing what I had uh, suggested way back in July when we started studying through Ephesians. That because it's a rather short letter, every week you could read the whole thing and then you would see the context very clearly each time we're in a particular passage and it would really become ingrained in who you are and i'm sure she's able to see the context with great ease because she's doing this but i also can't imagine there are many things weighing her down or stressing her out that don't then prompt in her mind and her heart a passage from ephesians that she can then turn into a prayer and hold on to as a promise and I find that beginning a prayer this way will often sort of blow the cobwebs out of my own mind and spirit and grease the wheels, and before long, I am pouring out my own heart to God in short order. And speaking of short order, number three, very briefly, don't worry about praying over long and eloquent prayers. Don't worry about praying so eloquently. I don't even know if I can pray. I hear all these other people pray, and I, don't, I can't pray like that. I have on my shelf... In my study of volume of Spurgeon's own prayers, which are beautiful and full of majesty, and I will often read them and pray them myself. I also have 
many volumes of prayers by others. I have a collection of Puritan prayers called the Valley of Vision. If I was being sent to a desert island with two books, I'd take the Bible and the Valley of Vision any day. I've got prayers of the church fathers and everything in between. But even though these are a huge help and encouragement to me, I have to remind myself that flowery and poetic language does not make a prayer better. And lack of it does not hold a prayer down from getting up into heaven. I've known ministers and theologians who pray in full-on King James English every time. You know, they've seen God's Twitter page, and they know that his preferred pronouns are thee, thou, thine. Absolutely. But I've known many people who address God far more plainly, still with reverence. And I'm all for the these and thous. I respect that very much if it comes out of a deep reverence for God. But I suspect that for some people, it's about impressing others who are hearing the prayers. For some people, it may be more about trying to kind of get on their tiptoes spiritually and get more in in God's level to speak to him in his own lofty language. And I'm sorry, you can't do that. His thoughts are so far higher than our thoughts, we couldn't even begin to, to think them or understand them. We can only understand what he reveals to us. Now, John Calvin spoke of the scriptures, the revealing of God to man, whenever God speaks to us as speaking to us as a mother lisping to her baby. You know how, how you talk to a little baby in kind of very simplified language they can understand, unless you're like an academic and you say, no, you have to speak in full syntax from the day you bring them home. Uh, but, you know, you, 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 everybody talks differently to little tiny children because you want them to understand what you are saying. And the same thing is true of God speaking to us. He wants us to understand, and so he has to, to come down to our level. We cannot go up to his. And when we speak to him, we have to remember that no matter how ornate our language, when he hears us, it's still apparent hearing a little child trying to be understood. If you have had little children at any time, you know that, that their vocabulary grows very slowly at first and includes very, uh, let's say, inventive words. One of Calvin's first words was babia, meant a banana. If you wanted a banana, you say babia. Sometimes it was biabia, sometimes it was babia. Maybe that was random. I have a theory that he was actually inflecting it based on the case and, and usage at the time. But whatever the case, he'd say this fake word, babia, we'd give him a banana, right? It's the lisping of a child, baby talk to a mother. One of my favorite things is to look at uh, Sam Police's Facebook and see all the weird little funny things that, that Susie and Levi are saying and how, how wonderful it is. Parents understand the, the, their children speaking. They don't have to be eloquent to be understood. And so if what comes pouring out of you and out of your heart is beautiful language, offer that up to God. If what comes out of your heart is more unadorned and plain, don't sweat it. Offer that up to God. One is not more impressive than the other to him. In fact, some of the prayers we see in Scripture that are most kind of lifted up for us to emulate are very simple and very brief, right? Have mercy on me, a sinner. That's what the tax collector said as he beat his breast and would not look up to heaven. That may be the ultimate prayer in the New Testament. Jesus says, this is what it looks like to understand how you, a sinner, can come to God and be justified. Or Peter, when he's, he's on the waves and then all of a sudden he starts to sink. He doesn't say, oh Lord thy God who is great in all the heavens. No, he says, Lord help me. Lord save me. Great prayer. Lord I believe, help my unbelief. Great prayer. 
Matthew 6, 7-8, Jesus says, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And then He immediately leads into the Lord's Prayer. So when you pray, pray like this. And He gives us this model prayer. By the way, another good way to begin your prayers when you don't know what to say. It is very simple language. We pray it because of tradition in this lofty King James speak, but Jesus gave a very plain prayer, very straightforward language. And when you pray it, you ought to use it as a guide, a model, and fill in the details from your own heart and life as you go. Number four, assuming that you've begun to pray and are not at a loss for words, be sure to pray humbly. Pray humbly. Humbly, Yes, we have this great honor, as we read in Hebrews 4.16, of coming boldly to the throne of grace. And that is something to be celebrated. But there is a big difference between coming boldly and coming presumptuously. I've heard prayers and I've prayed prayers that sounded more like someone ordering a pizza than someone approaching a throne of any kind. I'll take this, uh, some of that, extra this, leave off that. Oh, all right, that's it. Make it happen. Remember, 30 minutes or it's free. Even though we can come boldly to the throne of grace, we're still coming to the throne of grace, meaning we don't deserve to be there. This is unmerited favor. And we're still coming to the throne of grace, meaning that we're coming before a sovereign, a king. And so there must be humility. No one had more right to approach the Father boldly than Jesus himself. I and the Father are one, he said. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. And yet when he prayed, he didn't say, okay, here's what I want, here's what I need, blah, blah, blah. He said, not my will, but your will be done. That's what he modeled for us. In the ESV, that boldly to the throne of grace is translated, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That may be a little closer. Is there a difference between going somewhere boldly, I'm going boldly where no man has gone before, or going somewhere with confidence, knowing I am welcome there? We could translate that word confidence, openness. Or, if we wanted to be very wooden about it, we could translate this with all speaking. Meaning that that we're not like the subjects of King Xerxes in the book of Esther, where he might murder his own subjects if they come to him unbidden. If you, if you come into his presence to ask for something and he didn't invite you, that might be it. He might kill you. No, we can approach our Lord anytime and say anything. But that's all the more reason to be humble. And when we approach him with humility, our first thought should be that we are only at this throne of grace by his grace. We are sinners saved by grace. We're here because while we've sinned and rebelled against him, he's washed us clean. So we need to confess our sins whenever we stand before our God. We need to confess our sins whenever we stand before our God. That's part of the model prayer Jesus gives us. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. There's a humility here in acknowledging our sin. When Peter first understood the the depth of who Jesus is, the miraculous catch of fish. He fell down on his face before him, and he said, Away from me, for I am a sinful man. And the fact is that if you and I were still in our sins, that would be the correct way for us to respond as well. We should want him away from us. 
Because we can't be in his presence sinful as we were, but we're not still in our sins. And so we confess and draw near and know that he's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Or I think of Isaiah when he's in God's presence and he says, Woe to me, I am a man of unclean lips. In our study of Ephesians, we've been seeing again and again the emphasis on speech and being controlled by the Spirit. Well, he was undone by the uncleanness of his lips. And when he said that, do you remember what happened? God gave the order, and one of the angels came with tongs and took out of the fire a glowing hot coal and put it to his lips to purify them. Before we ask God to give us anything, and I would suggest before we even go into lengthy praise to Him, we need Him to purify us. And so in humility, we confess our sins and ask Him to wash us clean, to make our lips clean so that as we speak to Him, we are doing so worthily. Spurgeon said, When I wander away from God, I may have some idea of being holy, but when I draw near to Him, I always feel as Job when he said, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see thee. Therefore, I abhor myself in dust and ashes. If you would have the Lord hear, be sure you speak to him in humble notes. You have rebelled against him. You are a sinner by nature, and though forgiven and accepted and therefore freed from the dread of wrath, you can never forget that you were a rebel. And if it had not been for sovereign grace, you would still be a rebel. Therefore, speak with lowliness and humility before the Lord if you would receive an answer. Number five, fill your prayers with thanks and praise. I think we often just have this notion of prayer as me asking God for stuff. Right? Let's see, what do I want? What do I want? There's a, a model for prayer that I remember hearing growing up, ACTS, A-C-T-S, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. I think it misses one little thing, but I don't have much of a quibble with it. It's good. And I think it's important and not an accident that S is at the end. Supplication, asking God to give us things, making it the least priority, the last priority, after praising and thanking and confessing. But I think that if we're not careful, even that can mean that we'll rush through the first aspects of our prayer and then get to that last one and stay there for a long time. All right, I need this, I need that, I need more. In Philippians 4, 6, we're told, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to, made known to God. Even our requests and supplication should be infused then with thanksgiving. If we very briefly tell God that we think he's great and that we're grateful for what he's done, but then we launch into laundry lists full of other stuff we still want him to do, and that's the lion's share of our time in prayer, there's an implication that he's still got a lot to prove. That what he's not done for us seems to outweigh what he has done for us. And I don't think the answer is to spend less time in supplication, rather to spend more time in praise and thanksgiving. Praise Him. Meditate on the character of God, His perfections, His holiness, His faithfulness, His glory, His power, and give voice to them. That's much of what prayer is in the Scriptures. Don't let your thoughts tip back to yourself right away. We all know someone who turns every conversation into, okay, back to me now, back to my life 
and my accomplishments and my needs. Don't be that guy when you're talking to the God of the universe. Praise Him. Give Him thanks. Yeah, yeah, you created everything, you sustained everything, you bought my salvation by your vicarious death and your, your miraculous resurrection. But you know what's even more interesting? My annoying coworker and my toenail fungus. Let's spend most of our time together on that. Now, don't hesitate to bring what may seem like small things to God in prayer, certainly, but focus far more on the big thing, which is the God of the universe and the fact that he wants you in his presence and he wants you to pour out your heart to him. To again quote Spurgeon, I believe it is the experience of many who love secret devotion that at times they cannot pray for their hearts seem cold, dumb, hard, and almost dead. Do not pump up unwilling and formal prayer, my brethren, but take down the hymn book and sing. While you praise the Lord for what you have, you will find your rocky heart begin to dissolve and flow in rivers. This is another cure for prayerlessness. What is singing praise to God if not praying to God, offering up prayers of worship? I think that this kind of thing we, we can do from the book of Psalms. That's a great resource, but also from our own hymn book or any music that you might sing in church or any, any good worship music at all. And filling our hearts with praise and giving thanks to God, it's, yes, another excellent way to enter into a spirit of prayer when it eludes us, and it's a vital element of prayer in general. And finally, God does want us to ask Him for what we need, to, to give to Him the desires of our hearts, asking Him to give us satisfaction in Him. He does want that. And so number six we must pray in faith. Mark eleven twenty four, which you've already heard this morning, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Now, to do this verse justice, we would need at least a whole sermon, probably a bit of a series, looking at the context, what is being promised here. We kind of already did this with what we call the School of Prayer on Wednesday nights a couple of years ago. We don't have the time right now, but one thing that is clear from that passage is that our prayers being answered is directly related to our faith in offering them up. There is a strong connection there. Throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus often healed people and told them, your faith has healed you. Obviously, we read this and say, well, clearly Jesus, by the power of God, healed them. But just as God uses our faith as the instrument by which to save us, right? You're saved by grace through faith. So he uses our faith as the instrument to answer our prayers. Your, 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 your prayers are answered by God's grace and power through faith. If we're going with confidence to the throne of grace, that means we're going before a king. And I think when we ask ourselves, what is my state of mind? What is the state of my heart going before the throne of grace? We have, to, we have to say, am I recognizing that it's grace? And am I recognizing that it's the throne? Because if it's a throne, that means I'm talking to a king. And if I'm talking to a king, it means that he is sovereign and able to do what I ask. In fact, Scripture says, able to do far more than I could even conceive. Uh, far more than I could even imagine. Jesus says in Mark 9, all things are possible for one who believes. To that end, our prayers should be specific. I remember as a youth pastor for quite a few years, 
Oftentimes, the young people, as they would pray, they would want to pray audaciously, but they, they you know, weren't used to praying in front of each other. And you'd often hear something like, Lord, just bless everyone. Okay, well, that's, that's big, but you haven't really prayed for anyone at this point. Right? I, I was challenged long ago in seminary not to just pray for my congregation, but to pray for each of the people in my congregation by name, to pray for individuals, to pray specifically for things for those individuals. When we were doing that school of prayer class some years back, I shared a story about a, a wonderfully righteous uh, saint uh, named Helen uh, when I was uh, about 16, I was the youth liaison on the deacons. There was always one youth group member on the deacons. I loved that. I'd love to get back to that. We did that here for a while. Uh, and in the midst of that, there was a, a way that people could give their prayer requests confidentially to the deacons and know that the deacons would spend time in prayer over these things. It was wonderful. Uh, and one week, one member said, please, please pray because my son, uh, my adult son that lives with me is very, very in just bondage to pornography. It's taking over his life. It's, it's just killing his spirit. Just please pray that he would be freed from this. So someone said to Helen, would you pray for this? And she said, sure. And she began to pray. And she said, Lord, I pray that every time he looks at that vile stuff, he would feel physically ill. Amen. That was it. That was the prayer. A few weeks later, I say, hey, where is, we'll call him Todd. His mother said, sorry, he's sick today, but uh, I'll tell him that you asked about him. Please pray for him. He's not feeling well. Next week, oh, he's sick again. Next week, he's back. And then we get the, uh, the prayer request in the deacon's box. Praise. I don't know what did it, but he burned all that pornography. She prayed very specifically. It was big, but without being broad and overly general. I think we're often afraid to pray too specifically because we don't want to deal with the difficult question and conundrum. What was wrong? Was it my prayer? Is it God himself? Or what's the problem if what we're asking for doesn't come to pass? Again, there's too much here to unpack in this text. We're out of time. But a prayer in faith does not hedge against disappointment. It believes. It knows that a prayer that is offered in faith is the kind of prayer that God has promised to answer. The King of Kings is our Father. And so we ask big. We ask huge when our need is big. And we don't worry that we'll offend Him by asking for small things either. Let me close with one more gem from Spurgeon. If you may have everything by asking in His name and nothing without asking, I beg you to see how absolutely vital prayer is. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, not just once in the morning, but give him the best and beginning of your day and be in prayer without ceasing throughout the day, remembering that our God, the King of the universe, wants to hear from us. What a joy, what a gift, what an honor it is, and what a shame it would be to squander. Heavenly Father, we do confess to you, prayerlessness, that even those of us who make a point to pray once a day or twice a day, ought to probably be praying more. Lord, we don't want to be racked with guilt. We want instead to be drawn more into your presence, to feel more of a pull toward you, to have our first reaction, our knee-jerk reaction to just about anything in life be, let me bring this to the Lord in prayer a moment. 
that we like, like Nehemiah would offer up arrow prayers in the moment. The Lord save me prayer of Peter as he sunk. And in the quiet times when we have some, some time to reflect and to think that, Lord, we would enter into deep prayer, conversational prayer, opening your word and knowing that these promises apply to us and praying that you would bring them into our lives, into our church, that, Lord, you would use us to spread the gospel, that you would use us to help those who are the least of these and forgotten by uh, society and, and, and set aside and shunted to the side. Lord, that you, we would pray all these things, big things, and not be afraid that they're too big. Little things and not be ashamed that they're too little. And that, Lord, we would know that when we come before you, we don't need to be eloquent and, and long and loquacious, that you want to simply hear what is on our hearts. Lord, we thank you that even when we don't have the words, you will hear our prayers. We pray that we would never say to ourselves, I'm too busy to pray, but that, Lord, we would recognize we are too busy not to pray. And we pray all this now in the name of Jesus. Amen.